The sermon text this morning is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 61, verses 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. I think most of you probably would agree with me. There's a degree of confusion over Christmas. Um, I think sometimes we lose what is the actual meaning of the celebration. Uh, so in the movies and the shows that we watch don't always help us zero in on what, in fact, Christmas is about. So you have the Christmas story by Charles Dickens. You know, it, it encourages care for the poor and the broken, and, and that's that's a great message, but, but it's, it's not central to the Christmas message. Or you have uh, It's a Wonderful Life with James Stewart, a great movie about community and, and friendships and that sort of thing. That's great too, but it's not, that's not the center of this Christian, of the Christmas message. Or, or you have it, it, Grinch Stole Christmas. I, I love that movie, right? And, and that's all about, you know, hey, you can get joy without the materialistic benefit of presence. And that's a great message, too. But at the end of the day, they all kind of miss it by a little bit. The one Christmas special, I will say, does kind of capture the central message of Christmas is the Charlie Brown Christmas special. Uh, you got Luke there, remember? Or, I'm um, sorry, Linus. Reading Luke with Schroeder and the piano, and he's there, and he says, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, or the Messiah, the Lord. So here, the, the central idea of Christmas is that God has kept his promise. He's kept his promise to send a Savior, a Deliverer, to save. And now, not just to save us from sins, but actually to remake the whole world. He's going to make all things new. This is an incredible promise. It isn't just to identify with us. It's not just to suffer with us. He's come to make all things new, like a complete do-over, if you will. Now, a few years back, there was that television show about the, um, I think it was called Extreme Makeover. Extreme Makeover, the home edition. And, and, and it, was a, it was a great story. You know, they come in, some families having a tough, tough time, and, and the, they send them away for a week, all expense paid vacation, and they come in and they just redo the house. And they, you know, they, put a new roof on it. They do new landscaping, all new appliances. They change out. They almost make it as if it's like a new and different house. And, and they come back, and it's exciting, and, and it really is fun to watch. Well, can you imagine that in your life? I mean, I mean not, not, not just the things you own, but how about 
a makeover on your life. You know, all the, all the things that you've said that you wish you had never said, all the relationships that you, that you damaged by being angry or bitter, or, or, all, the, or all the, you know, the, the, the jobs that you didn't work well at. I mean, everything redone, all of your sins, all of, all of the broken relationships, all of the, ah, oh, I wish I hadn't have said that. All those taken away, and you're just made new. Can you imagine? I mean, the load that would fall off your shoulder, it'd make you really happy. You'd say that was really good news. Well, this is the news we have in this text. But I want you to understand that this good news comes in a very bad time. A very bad time. I, I want to do two things. First, I want to explain the context of when this promise of all things being made new. I want to explain the context to you so you understand a promise made in darkness. And then I want you to really, I guess, just rejoice with me over the promise made and how it was fulfilled in Christ. So first, let me explain the darkness to you. So here we are in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet. Prophets were sent by God to call people to live according to the word. Prophets were really a grace of God to the people, saying, here's how to walk with God. People, we tend to go, our hearts are prone to wander. We all feel it, right? So the prophet's there to call us back. Isaiah and Malachi were two prophets in the middle of the 8th century, calling Israel, calling really the nation of Judah back to God. And they did not listen to these prophets. And so we learned last week with Micah how the Assyrian nation, nation of Assyria, came in and took these 10 northern tribes, uh, Israel it was called, and took them captive because of their sin. Well, at the end of the book of Isaiah, he's already warned the people that Assyria, by the way, has been replaced with Babylon. And he says, Babylon, within 100 years, Babylon is going to come and destroy your nation. And he says they're going to destroy Jerusalem, going to lay it waste, and it's going to take the whole lot of you back to Babylon. This happened in 586 B.C. But here's what I want you to think. Think Europe at the end of World War II. You know, in the European theater of the war, there was no town untouched. There were no civil structures. There were no social structures. Families were torn apart. There was hunger. There was lack of resources. It was a very, very dark time in European history. And what he's saying here is, that's coming to you. You have darkness ahead. Because of your sin, because of every rebellion, darkness is going to fall, and it's going to fall hard. But it wasn't just a physical darkness, I want you to understand. There is a spiritual darkness. What I mean by that is this, that Israel was a nation that was chosen by God to be his light. They would proclaim the gospel to the world. They would be a people. God gave them a land. He gave them, if you will, an Eden. He gave them a place to be fruitful, it says, flowing with milk and honey. Kind of reminds you of what Eden would be like. And he gave them that land. And from there, they were to declare the glory of God to the nations. And the nations were to come to Israel to see and learn of God. But what is God doing to this nation? He's bringing judgment upon them. He's not only destroying Jerusalem, his city, but he's going to have them carted out to Babylon. God is turning his back. These are the people that were given the law, the covenants, and the ordinances. These were the people of God, and they're being judged for their sin. 
So this wasn't national humiliation losing to the Babylonians. This was a spiritual humiliation. God is abandoning them. Now I want to remind you, it always wasn't this way. So march with me back to the beginning when there was no darkness. There was only light. There was the presence of God in the garden with the man and the woman. It was when they turned against God. They questioned his goodness. They decided to go their own way. They did not want to submit to the words of God. And what happened? God exiled them. He sent them into exile. You see this theme of exile throughout the scriptures. He exiled them. And when they were exiled from his presence, what happened? Well, anger, strife, bitterness, murder. And what about all their descendants? They continued in this same downward pattern. And it ended up, of course, the whole lot of them being judged by the flood, but one family. God preserving his promise, he calls one family, Noah, and saves them. But what happens with Noah? They begin. It's like a makeover, isn't it? The whole earth is now washed clean of sin, and they're going to start over. But very quickly, it begins to spiral downhill again. You have the children of Noah and his wife begin to spiral downward until chapter 11, when they gather together and they say, we're going to build a tower. We're going to make a name for ourselves. We don't need this God. We want to be God. The same sin as Adam and Eve. And God brings judgment to them by confusing the languages and busts up their party. What does God do, though? He draws a family, Abraham. He takes one from the nations to save the nations. And through this family, he's going to bless the world. But what happens to Abraham's descendants? They do the same thing. They begin to spiral downward. Even the kingdom itself gets split after Solomon. The ten northern tribes are carted off to Assyria, and then the two southern tribes, they're going to be destroyed. What's it look like? It looks like God has dropped the ball. His plan at saving the world, his plan at making all things new that he promised in Genesis 3, it's all fallen to, to pieces. It's all, it looks like he failed. What's God going to do? He made a promise. Is he not going to keep it? I wanted to stop here for a minute and remind you, this is the darkness that we live in. We live in exile right now. Even those of you who are Christian, we exist in a corrupt and a fallen world. I mean, if you rip the branch off the tree, how long will the branch last? It can't last long before it goes dark. And that is our culture. That is our world. You see it in the fruit of your lives, don't you? I mean, you see the bust up relationships. We act selfishly. We act with bitterness and rage. We ruin relationships. The physical maladies, the disease, the cancer, the death that we experience, the societal injustices, racism, and so forth from our selfishness and prejudice, we see the fruit of darkness, don't we? And we see it generation after generation. I'm not like Mr. Doomsdayer here. I mean, just look at the history of humanity. Has it gotten better? Have things changed? Have wars not followed wars? Have corrupt governments not followed corrupt governments? Is it not? What hope do we have for our children? What legitimate hope do we have? Is it going to change? You say, well, things have changed. You know, we've increased in technology. That's true, we have. We can find criminals faster, but we can't change them any different. We can't do anything about not helping them not want to commit crime. What are we going to do? You know, it, it almost seems like we've got to start over. It almost seems like we've got to be reborn. 
It almost seems like we need a major makeover for us to get out of this spiraling cycle of darkness, doesn't it? Well, that's what you find in this passage in Isaiah. When Danielle read the passage, it's about making all things new. It's about one to come who is going to bind up, who's going to heal, proclaim good news, proclaim freedom. All the fruits of darkness are going to be overturned by this one who says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Isn't that good news? Don't we find that? In Isaiah 61, when he says that, the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance, he will comfort all who mourn. This is really good news. But the question is, who is the me? You know, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Who is it? Is it Isaiah? I don't think so. I I would submit to you that this person is a servant, but he's a messianic servant. Now, this shouldn't be news to you if you've been here for a week or two. We've been tracing out the promises of this Messiah servant coming. But let me remind you, if you have forgotten. So if you go back in the book of Isaiah to chapter 6, for example, it's in the year King Uzziah died. I don't expect many of you to know that name. He was a good king in Judah's history. He died, and Isaiah is wondering, what of the kingdom of God? We've lost our king. And so God takes Isaiah into heaven, and Isaiah sees the true king. Uh, th- these other human kings that Isaiah had been prophesying to, they were just faint reflections, or were supposed to be, of the true king in heaven, the glorious king, the eternal king. And Isaiah saw him. And of course, as you can imagine, he says, woe is me, I'm, I'm a dead man. I'm, a de- I, I, I'm ruined right now. And, and, and a coal was brought from the fire to touch his lips, to purify him. And Isaiah gets up and he asks to be sent to proclaim the greatness of this king. That's in chapter 6. What did we learn in chapter 7? He speaks about a king named Emmanuel. It's going to be a child. He's going to be born of a virgin but it's going to be God with us, this divine king. Then you go to chapter 9. We hear more about this king. He's called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's a king. He's in the line of David. We see this in chapter 11 about this Davidic king. It's going to be a shoot that comes from the stump of Jesse. That's a fancy way of speaking. Jesse is David's father. And a shoot, it's going to be a humble beginning. But he's going to be a king. And it says, the spirit of the Lord will be upon him this son of David. But here's the time and the age that he's going to bring in. In chapter 11, it says, and the spirit of God shall rest upon him. And then he says, and the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child should lead them. He's giving us a picture of the type of messianic age he's going to bring. He's showing us this Messiah, This king upon whom the spirit rests, he will bring in an age that will make all things new, will make all things better. Can you imagine the promise? On the eve of destruction, this is the promise that they get. Now, did God keep his promise? Well, a lot of people want to say, this is back now. So this is back in the 7th century. A lot of people want to say, well, yeah, God did bring the people back from Babylon. He did that under the ministry of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, and you say that three times fast, I'll spin you. Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Three waves of people came back, but it was the same. They were back in the land, but they were still under foreign domination. 
they were still in this spiral of sin and darkness, what would God do? Who would he raise up? What would bring about a change? Well, God made this promise in Isaiah. You and I have read it together. And God kept his promise. But we see his promise being kept, not in the birth of Christ, but in the ministry of Christ. Let me read to you from Luke chapter 4. And this is about Jesus beginning his ministry. Let me read these words. He says, He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. Jesus, of course. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. So Jesus unrolled the scroll, and he's looking through the chapters, and he finds the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. It said the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened to him, and he began by saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your midst. Can you believe that? You know what he's saying? He's saying, I am he. I am me. I am the one that said the words back in Isaiah. He is self-identifying as the Messianic king from the line of David to make all things new. Can you imagine? He's in his hometown. These are neighbors that watched you grow up. And he's saying that he was the one that Isaiah saw. And he's the one that Isaiah heard in Isaiah 6. He's the real, true king. They had to blow their minds. Had to blow their minds. But then we see his ministry begin to walk out the very things that he said. This idea of proclaiming good news. This idea of binding up the brokenhearted. The idea of, of giving sight to the blind and proclaiming the Lord's favor, releasing the oppressed. This is what we see in the ministry of Christ. So there's about seven tasks that this Messiah will do as recorded in the text we read. Let me just put them in three buckets for you. I think it might be easier to remember. N number one, you see Jesus Christ come as a prophet. He's a prophet. You see that there in the first one when he's proclaiming the good news to the poor. He is a prophet but the quintessential prophet. He's proclaiming good news. What is the good news? Well, Isaiah 52, 7 says that the good news is that God is reigning right now, and he's now establishing a kingdom through his son on this earth. And the good news is that now a good king is reigning. Finally, a good government and a good king will reign in perfect righteousness and justice. That's the good news. And that message is going to the poor. Now, don't get twisted in terms of thinking, well, does he mean economic poor? Or does he mean spiritual poor? Yes. You see in the ministry of Christ that he cared for the, for the physically, the economically poor, right? He feeds the hungry. That word for poor in Hebrew also means afflicted. He cared for those who were afflicted. You see that in his ministry caring for the widow, caring for the orphan, those that were tend to, tending to be under society's pressure, he cared for them. But don't stop at the physical, because Jesus never stops at the physical. He drives deeper. And what he does is he cares for those who are morally poor. 
You know, it was Jesus who said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, those people who are morally bankrupt, those people who have lived their lives without God, they may be economically strong, but they are morally poor, like a Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus had no problems with cash, but he was morally bankrupt. Jesus went after him, and he called him to have dinner with him. He went after those who are morally poor, those who need forgiveness, those who have no place for God. So, so you see, Jesus is a prophet. He's calling people to himself. He's calling the unrighteous. He's calling sinners. Don't think you're outside the realm of Christ's voice and calling you to himself. Do you realize that when Jesus came, he joins this long line of preachers to preach, to be a prophet, to proclaim the good news, is the way Jesus gathers the people. He gathers them both by saving them through preaching, but also by sanctifying and growing them through preaching. God gave his word to Adam to form him. Jesus brings forth the word of the good news to save people. So in 1 Peter we read, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. God intends to use the words of men preaching the good news to bring about conviction of sin that you would turn and find forgiveness by faith in Christ. That's how God is drawing people out of darkness into his kingdom. You and I don't kind of work our way there intellectually. We hear the word of Christ coming in the flesh to live a life among us, to die for our sins, to be raised to life, to be seated at the right hand, to come again. That is what draws us. But it doesn't just draw us to him in salvation. It continues with us in preserving us and encouraging us. Think about this. Each week you come here and you hear the same thing. So all of us together, we're hearing the same word of God. We're hearing the same explanation. We're hearing truth about the nature of God. And there's challenge given to live in light of that. We're all being conformed in the same way to the character of Christ. That's how he forms a people that look like him. If you don't come, you don't listen, you hear and you go off and you do your own thing. Yeah, the conforming work doesn't happen. But coming, hearing, saying, what must I do? What is he calling me to do? How do I respond to the revelation that I've, been, that I've just heard of God? That's what changes us. So Jesus came to preach the good news. He came as a prophet. Secondly, he came as a priest. He came as a priest. You see that he's come to bind up the brokenhearted. Do you know priests in the Old Testament were kind of the medical community as well? You know, if you had leprosy, if there was some illness that made you unclean, you'd have to go to the priest. The priest would authenticate, yes, you are healed from that leprosy. So the priests kind of had a medical component to their work as well. Jesus comes as a priest to bind up, to heal our brokenness and our weakness. Of course, I think he did that physically, right? He did that. He healed people who were sick. He raised the dead. He, he healed Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus. He gave him sight. So Jesus did come and show his concern for those who are broken under the physical maladies that we have in this life. But again, he drives deeper. Uh, the brokenness that we feel over our sin. It's much more than a broken arm. Think about the relationships that we've broken. Think about the, the way that we've hurt people or the loneliness in our lives or the discontent that we have. 
He's come to bind us up. So I think about the woman with the issue of blood. She's bleeding for 12 years. She's exhausted her funds. She can't get help. Because she's bleeding all the time, she's unclean. People can't touch her. They can't get near her. Can you imagine the desperate situation that she was in? She would be massively lonely. I cannot even imagine. And yet Jesus touches an unclean person and makes them clean. He binds her up. He doesn't just heal the wound, but he heals her such that she can integrate into society and live among her relatives and friends. He binds us up. I mean, so many of us have been broken by what we've done. We look back at our lives and we just think about the train wreck, the dumpster fire that I've caused by my life. And yet we never think to go to him as our priest to heal us. But, you know, Jesus is more than a priest that heals us physically and spiritually. He's actually unique in this way. He's a priest. He doesn't bring an offering. He actually is the offering. You know, it reminds me back of Isaiah 53, that sermon passage. Now, Isaiah 53, he says, And we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's kind of like in the Old Testament when the priest would put his hands on the sacrifice. And that was a picture to the Israelite community. All the sins of the people are being put upon the animal. And then the animal is slain. And the people are forgiven. They're washed clean. Jesus becomes not just a priest bringing an offering. He brings himself as the offering by laying down his life, by taking upon himself our sins, standing before God, being hung on a cross, bearing the wrath of God, so that God can be just in saying, you are now forgiven because he has died in your stead. So he comes as a prophet to proclaim the good news. He comes as a priest to affect the good news. He's accomplished the good news. What he promised in the forgiveness through faith He's now made a reality by laying down his own life for us. But you also see that he comes as a king. You see him, him coming as a king as he proclaims freedom for captives and release for the oppressed. What's he saying here? I think Jesus had an interest in the injustices of that culture. I think he took up the cause of the widow and the orphan and, and, and the refugee. I think he took up those causes. I think he was concerned with them. I think he moved to those who are marginalized, feeling the weight of society's pressure. I think that was important to him. But again, he drives deeper because he's going after those who are oppressed, slaves to their own sin. It may be alcohol, it may be pornography, it may be money, it may be food. But he wants to release those who feel as if they can't get out of that cycle and spiral of darkness. He's come to heal you and to free you from that. You running to him, help free me from this addiction. Help free me. I cannot do it. You must free me. That's what he has come to do. And not just freedom from addictions, but actually freedom from demonic oppression. Now, some of us look at that and we kind of giggle and think, oh, come on, demons and angels. Well, if you can believe in an incarnation, God taking on flesh and blood, I think you can probably believe in angels and rogue angels at that. But, you know, if you think about the woman in Luke 13, for 18 years, Jesus says she's been bound by Satan and I've released her. Can you imagine? He has released her from being bound by Satan. She stands upright. And what has burdened her has been removed. Or you think of the Gadarene demoniac. When Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, and meets this man. 
who was among the rocks in these, these caves and just terrorizing people. And Jesus cleanses him. He frees him. He wants to follow Jesus. Wouldn't you? I mean, wouldn't you? You're finally freed? You're finally freed from all the demonic oppression, the thoughts, the anger, the bitterness? You're freed. I want to go follow you. He goes, you go tell him what the Lord God has done for you. And he did. But notice, too, that as a king, he's come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, that may not make sense to you. What does that mean? Well, there's a clear reference to Leviticus 25, 25. And, and this is interesting. In the history of the people of Israel, every 50 years, there was a jubilee. A jubilee. Every 50 years, all the debts would be canceled. At the end of 50 years, all the slaves would be free, and all the land would be returned to the original tribes to which it was originally given in Joshua. Think about it. Can you imagine the excitement? Every 50 years, all debts canceled, all slaves freed, all land returned. I mean, all your consumer debt, gone. All, all your mortgage debt, gone. Your, your student debt, gone. Can you imagine the physical joy that you'd have, the temporal joy of all those debts being canceled? Why did he do it? Every 50 years, God was bringing parity to the people. He was bringing an, an equal distance. He was helping people get out of holes that they got themselves in, perhaps by gambling or misuse of fields or misuse of funds. And what God was doing was he was showing that he's a God who does makeovers. And he begins to heal and make things new. Every 50 years that would happen. But when Jesus does it, again, he drives it deeper. Can you imagine him saying to you, all your debts, all the debts against me for your sins, they're gone. All the things you've said wrong, the relationship, they're forgiven. Every thought you've had that's been dark and ugly, that you'd be embarrassed over anyone else knowing, every attitude you've held, every word you've said, all those things, the year of the Lord, it's favorable to you. It's gracious to you. You're forgiven. Can you imagine that? That's what he has come to do. And that's what he proclaimed to do. He proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor. This is why Jesus is a prophet and a priest and a king. You notice that verse 3, you know, he said instead of ashes, you know, the idea of throwing dust on your head and, and mourning over your sin, he says, no, I've given you a headdress. I've given you festival garments. Instead of mourning, you're now going to be joy-filled. Instead of having a faint spirit, uh, no, 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 you're going to now have garments of praise. You're going to be like an oak. You're not going to be this flimsy little reed waving in the wind. You're going to be an oak of righteousness because I'm going to plant you that way. And it'll all be to my glory. It'll be to my glory. You will glorify me for how I've come to be your prophet and your priest and your king. That is the Christmas promise. It's not simply came as a baby to show us he loved us. It was his coming in the flesh to be a king, to conquer death and sin, and to bring it all back and make all things new. But I want you to know, if you're here, there is an implicit warning in this text. It's a year of the Lord's favor. And I don't mean it's a 365-day year. of the. There's a limited duration of whatever this year means, however long it is. But you know it's limited. Why? I don't know if you noticed, but when we read Isaiah, verse 2, when Jesus quotes it in Luke 4, he doesn't quote the whole verse. In fact, he only quotes the first part of line 2. 
he says, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then it says, he rolls up the scroll. The very next phrase he doesn't say, it's to proclaim the day of vengeance. Jesus came, it really, it helps us understand the mystery of his coming. His coming is in a two-part drama. He comes the first time to preach the good news and to proclaim this year of the Lord's favor where forgiveness is offered. A year of jubilee is offered to you through grace and faith in Christ. But it won't always be that way. There will be a day that vengeance will come. Christ will come again. He'll bring justice to the wickedness and the fallenness and the dark spiraling of this world. And then there will be no favor. In fact, Charles Spurgeon says, the year of favor is a year, but it's followed by a long, despairing winter. So, so Christmas is a time that we want to consider where we are with God, who we are with God. Have we come to see Christ as our prophet and our priest and our king? Some of us still get confused thinking, well, well I, you know, this New Year's coming up. I'm going to make some changes this year. I'm going I'm to write, write the ship. I'm going to get on level footing here. I want you to realize that's not the way we come. That's not the way you become a Christian. You become a Christian by admitting that you're a sinner, that you're broken, that you need a prophet to preach good news. You need to hear the good news, and you need the prophet to actually affect the good news. And you need the prophet to finish the good news by returning. We often sing, in fact, I know Jeremy gets started me asking, but come ye sinners, I just love the song. He says, come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. That is the world. We can dress up sharp. We can look good. We can live well. But at the end of the day, it's a good description of humanity apart from God. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Come, you who are weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. I mean, if you think you're going to get there on your own merits, you, you won't come. Because you think you can do it. Not the righteous, not the righteous. Sinners, Jesus came to call. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. It's to come to that place. And Jeremy read the passage at the beginning of worship. Those who are weary and heavy laden, take my yoke upon you. I'll give you rest. So, so I don't know, maybe you're here and uh, visiting family, or, or you've been coming here for a long time. I want to remind you, coming to church doesn't make us a Christian. Having a better morality than your neighbors doesn't make you a Christian. Um, even, even assenting to the truth of the Christian faith doesn't make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is that you see that Christ has come to preach the good news, that forgiveness with God is through Christ alone. And it's seeing him as your priest, that he had to die for you to live. If he didn't die, you wouldn't live. And he's your king, that you're walking in a manner you know, he says, if you love me, you follow me. You obey me. You're not doing it perfectly, but you do see him as your king. You're living in line with what he wants you to do. These are markers of true salvation. If you're young, 
and, you, and you're, you've been raised in this church even, you've heard the gospel, you've heard all these truths, that doesn't make you a Christian. Your parents may be godly. I want you to understand, particularly at this Christmas time, that he has come to call sinners who know they're sinners. And they come and they say, we're weak, we're wounded, we're sick, and we're sore, would you take me? Would you take me just because it is, I heard the year of favor. I don't know how long that year lasts. I don't want to be presumptuous, but I do want to remind you that is how we become Christian. Now, friends, if you're here and you do feel that way, you have come to Christ, weak and wounded, sick and sore. You know that he's come to call sinners. How do we respond to Christmas? So I want to give you three charges. I want to give you three considerations. This is how, by the way, we're conformed into the people of God. You hear these things that I'm going to explain, and then you're going to try to walk them out to the degree that you can with your brothers and sisters. The first thing I would say to you in terms of celebrating Christmas, how does the Christian celebrate Christmas? Is it just opening presents and being with family? Well, sure, it involves that, but it's much more. I want you to consider pondering these truths. I want you to, I want, now listen, this is a tall order. Don't think this is easy. You're about to enter, you know, the warp speed leading up to Christmas here. So we've got to get presents, we've got to wrap them, we've got to get food, we've got to get ready for family, we've got to fix houses. You are going to be in a chaotic mood for the next three days. I'm going to ask you to peel away 10, 20 minutes each day. And I want you to ponder. I want you to think. I want you to contemplate. I want you to turn the TV off, shut the phones down, and think Christ has come in flesh to dwell among us. This is a huge apologetic for the reality of the Christian faith. Listen, Christianity is not a philosophy. It's not an ideology. It's not a good bunch of ideas that you ought to do. He put footprints on this earth. He has come to dwell among us. He has come in space and time and dwelled among us. He has done things that are verifiable or, or not verifiable. He has established a presence in this world. It's now the church declaring the glory of Christ. So make no, you want to ponder that he's come and he's done the work that's needed to be done. Look back at his life. He left the glory of the Father to take on flesh, to dwell among us. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself even to the point of death. And now he's ascended to his right hand. I, I need you to ponder that. Christmas is about Christ coming to make all things new. But I would also ask you to proclaim it. I'm going to ask you to speak about it. You have a unique time with friends and family. Everybody's singing about him. Everybody's talking about him. We ought to be the ones that proclaim it. Now, Jesus knows that we're going to do this. Listen to what Jesus says to his disciples in John 14. He says, Truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. So this mission of Jesus in Isaiah 61, it's our mission. It's what we do as a church. We are called to proclaim good news to the poor. Listen, you're going to be with family. I don't know the situations you're walking in. It may be difficult. It may be trying. There may be long-standing conflicts that you have with people. I'm going to ask you, to introduce this idea of the reason we're excited at Christmas is he's come to make all things new. You have hopeless people in your life. You have people in your life that are discontent and they cannot get out of their cycle of self-destructive behavior. You have words of a prophet, priest, and king who saves and who does change. Carol and I were, were just talking two days ago. It's like, we always go back to why in the world did he save me? Why did he change me? My world was headed in a dark place, and he just saved me. I don't know why. 
other than his sheer favor. But I'll tell you, I'm thankful, and I want to ponder it. I want to tell people, this is what he did for me. And, and so I would ask you to consider proclaiming it. And not just in word, but in deed. Listen, Jesus cared about the hungry. He cared about the oppressed. He cared about those who were suffering under societal injustices. You might not be in the, in the epicenter of some social issue. I would ask you to start here. Look in your circle of friends and family. Where can you bring justice? Where is injustice taking place? Maybe someone's not getting a fair shake. Maybe someone's being talked about in a, in a poor manner. Can you seek to bring justice to whatever relationships are out of justice in your life and in your sphere of relationships? Can you seek to care for those who are oppressed, weak, broken, hungry? Just start there, and I trust that God will lead you to other places. And, and then thirdly, so I'm going to ask you to ponder. I'm asking you to proclaim. I would even ask you to pray about that. God, give me the opportunity to share something of your Glory and your remaking of all things to be new. Give me the opportunity this coming week. And then last, I would say prepare. And we've been touching on this over the past few weeks. I'm asking you to prepare. I want you to think about the final day that Christ comes back. I want you, you know, we can do this. We can do this well. We know how to get excited about vacations. We know how to get excited about retirement. We know how to get excited about something fun that's coming to us. So just to full disclosure here, I kind of get excited about Christmas coming, and I do have two apps on my phone that do countdowns, and so I'll play them all the time and hit it, and it'll say 258 days left, and then I can press it, and the jingle, the bells jingle. So I've started trying to get Carol in the spirit of things. Every night as we're laying, we're about to go to bed, I happen to pull out the app, and, and she's almost asleep, and I, I wait till that right time, I hit it, it says 258 days. And I hit the jingle, and she's just now going to, ugh, when will it be over? I don't know that I'm cultivating excitement in you for that, but, but I get excited about it. I, I love Christmas, I really do, because I love this idea of Christ coming, dwelling among us, and saving us. Prepare. If we get excited about vacation, why wouldn't we get excited about seeing the one who binds up the brokenhearted? who will release all prisoners, who will give freedom to all captive. Why don't we get excited about that? And I would just propose two reasons. Number one, I think we get distracted. I think we have a nice life. God's blessings have been abundant in our lives. We like it. Ray sent that letter to you all, if you're members here at least, preparing you for the sermon. It's a nice thing to have the Amazon truck pull up, drop off a baggage, and boom, he's gone. I mean, we have a nice life. We have met, don't let his blessings be distractions from that greater blessing of his return. So I think we're distracted easily, but also I think we're ignorant of what we have coming. What does it mean that he's going to come and make all things new? Uh, what's that mean? Uh, we have this crazy idea, and sadly the church has promoted it, that what heaven is, is it's this disembodied experience. We die, our bodies go in the ground, and we kind of just take on this, this bodiless form. And we're kind of floating in the sky. There's nothing solid about it. Even the clouds you're sitting on are kind of squishy. There's nothing solid about it. We're just kind of floating up there with God, and it's going to be beautiful. That is not the way it's going to be. That is a false understanding of what he's come to make when he said, I make all things new. Now, I will say this, 
that to die, to be absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord. So for the Christian who dies, the body does go on the ground, the soul does go up into being in perfect communion with God, but that's not the final spot. What God intends, what Jesus intends to do is to make all things new. In other words, at the return of Christ, all the saints in heaven with God will return. They'll come to this earth and their bodies will join with their spirits and they will be made new. And they'll live on this earth. There's a continuity here. There's a con God doesn't look at the darkness and say, Forget it. I can't, I can't fix it. It's too far gone for me. I'm just going to start over over here. I'm going to make all things new as if they don't have any connection to what he's already made. There's a continuity here. This earth will be renewed or remade. Our bodies. That's why Jesus came out with a body that had scars. There's a continuity. Our bodies are going to be remade. This is what Jesus has come to do. He is bringing us back into an Eden, but a better Eden. An Eden where he is king, and we are worshiping him. Visualize this with me, just for a moment. Consider this. I mean, consider your body. You know, particularly those of us who are growing older. I mean, the age spots, the gray, the weak, the, the, the inability to do what you once were able to do. Or maybe you've suffered the loss of limbs, or you've suffered other physical maladies that are permanent. All those things will be made new. Uh, the weak will put on strong. The, the, perishable, the perishable will put on imperishability. The, the, the physical will put on spiritual. You'll be made new. You'll be like him when you see him. But not just your bodies. Think about your minds. Your minds will be sharpened. They say we use 10% of our brains. You'll use 100%. 100%. And those of us, as you get older and we begin forgetting things, staff likes to point out to me periodically, there won't be any memory loss. Our minds will be sharpened. But not just our bodies and our minds, our relationships, the relationships we have. You know the kind of the awkward relationships, the struggles we have with certain people? They'll all be made glorious. What about society? Society, you know, our society, we feel like things are going really, uh, getting quite polarized. It's getting quite, rage is the, is the name of our culture right now. But we'll have a society where a government will be perfect, a perfect government, perfect righteousness and justice. There'll be no threat of violence. There'll be no threat of thievery. Think about it. All the police stations, gone. Army bases, gone. Prisons, gone. Hospitals, gone. Your, your neighbors will be walking in righteousness like you. How about work? Work will be glorious. Let's say you're an oceanographer. Can you imagine consulting the one who made the oceans? If you're an astronomer, consulting the one who formed the stars with a word? Can you imagine what work will be like? There won't be these thorns and thistles that you're moving through in work. It will be gloriously fruitful. We want to visualize. We want to prepare ourselves. We are pilgrims. God is going to renew all these things. That's the point of Christ's coming. It's not simply about gifts and family and the traditions. It's about Christ's coming to return to the Father, a kingdom in perfection. We may have ruined it, but the last Adam is going to come and he's going to make it all new, and we're going to enjoy it with him. Can you imagine? Th ponder 
these thoughts. Proclaim these thoughts. And then, friends, prepare. Don't be a member here that forgets that you've, that you've heard from me. We need to think about it. And then rejoice over it. Let's take a moment and just ask God. Ask God. If you don't desire him to return, ask for a desire to desire him. And I'll pray for us in just a moment.